Welcome to Ragbag's bonus bag. My name's Frank Burton. We are back with part four of the audiobook serialization of Getting Away With It, the second in the Ragbag Books series. Things are getting interesting. Let's get straight on with it. Chapter 22 I hardly saw her over the next few months. I continued bluffing my way from one temporary job to another. Whenever Jenna suggested going out for a drink, I'd make the excuse of being busy working or writing, or sometimes I'd just ignore the call. She took the hint, and her calls grew much more irregular. I agreed to spend Christmas Day with Jenna at Rolf and Rose's house, mainly because Rolf had personally invited me. We'd been corresponding via email, and Rolf had been very encouraging about some of the short stories I'd been working on. We had a great time, four friends together, having dinner, drinks, conversation and a laugh. It felt strangely normal. In particular, Jenna seemed much more like a regular person. It seemed as though Fido and Elephant were no longer occupying her thoughts the whole time. She listened to people properly and waited for her turn to speak. We parted that evening with no plans to meet again in the near future. I didn't see her for a long time after that. We'd have the occasional late night chat on the phone, but the subject of Jenna's criminal activity never came up. We talked about boring stuff, which felt nice to be able to do. Crucially, I stopped thinking of Jenna as being my best friend. The fact that I'd once described her as my sister just sounded weird now. She was an old mate who I enjoyed catching up with from time to time. That was all, and that was fine. On my 24th birthday, my dad turned up at my flat in the morning, driving a new car. Happy birthday, son, he greeted at the door. Good to see you, dad, I said. Come on in. I can't stop. I just brought you another car for old time's sake. Stay for a drink at least. Seriously, i got to go to work. Another time. Well, thanks for the car. She's a good little runner, he said. Looks like it, I said. I think I'll keep hold of this one. It'll be handy for work. It's a nice surprise. Well, in all honesty, said my dad, it was always my intention to buy one for you every year. I was doing well at the bookies. I didn't know what else to do with the money. Then... I stopped doing well at the bookies for a couple of years, hence me being out of touch. But you know what, Frank? I'm doing well at the bookies again. As a matter of fact, I'm doing extremely well. So take this with my blessing. Cheers. I don't need one every year though, Dad. I earn enough now. What about your university? I'm not a student anymore, Dad. Oh, right. You should spend it on something nice for you, I said. Maybe take mum away on holiday or something. He shrugged. I don't think that's really a thing. Or a holiday for yourself. Doesn't seem right. Why not? You work hard enough. When was the last time you went away somewhere? 
I'm always away somewhere, he replied with a strange look in his eye. I'm never actually here. Does that make sense? Even now, I'm physically here with you, but I'm thinking about all this other stuff that needs to be done. Thinking about work and what I'm going to do afterwards. As long as you're taking time for yourself and enjoying yourself, I said. Oh, I do that, said my dad. It's your mum that I worry about. I don't know if you've noticed, but she started to drink an awful lot. You reckon? Oh yeah, first thing in the morning and everything. She won't listen when I bring it up with her though, just ignores me. Ignores pretty much everything I do to be honest. Right, I said. It's just an idea dad, but you don't actually have to stay with her, you know. Don't I? No, you don't. I often think about leaving, you know. So why don't you do it? What's stopping you? My dad looked over his shoulder as though suddenly paranoid about someone overhearing. Well, he said, I, um, it sounds a bit funny, Frank, but I wouldn't want to let you down. I burst out laughing. <laughs> really? What's funny about that? You did say it sounded funny yourself, I said. No, but explain to me why that's funny, Frank. I'd like to hear you say it. Okay, I said. It's funny because it wouldn't make any difference to me whether you and Mum are together or not. It's been six years since I left home and I've got a feeling I've seen you fewer than six times since then. If you're really only staying with Mum because you don't want to let me down, I suggest you get the hell out of there. He listened, nodding his head, taking all this information in as though his version of events somehow differed wildly from my own. We all have these little habits, don't we? He said quietly. With her, it's the drink. With me, I've always thought it was the gambling, but maybe it's not the gambling. Maybe the gambling's good for me. Maybe it's her. Maybe she's my bad habit. I know how you feel, I said. I was in the same situation myself last year. I had this friend who I was kind of obsessed with. Girlfriend? Friend who happens to be a girl, I said. Looking back on it, everything I did for a while was because of her. Either because she told me to, or because I was trying to impress her in some way. And then one day, I just decided that was that. I was living the life she wanted me to live, rather than living for myself. Does that make any sense? My dad was looking at the sky. Are you okay? I said. It's been good to talk, Frank, he said. I do have to go now. He hugged me very tightly, just for one second, then pulled away and marched off down the street. A few weeks later, I spent another Christmas day at Rolf and Rose's house with Jenna. I'd managed to last a whole year without seeing her in the flesh. She looked exactly the same, except somehow she was taller. Had she always been that tall? Maybe I'd shrunk. It felt nice to have this as part of our annual routine now. Rolf and Rose were the perfect hosts, and for the briefest of moments, Jenna herself was perfect again too.
Chapter 23 In early 2004, I wrote a dystopian short story called The Illusion of Security. It was about a security guard whose job was to look after an abandoned building following a large financial crash. It combined my own brief experience in that line of work with a few philosophical ideas about the concept of security itself. A few years later, I'd include it in my first book, A History of Sarcasm. The story itself wasn't perfect, but I was pleased with it. It was the first thing I'd written that felt like I was doing something properly different. Rolf sent me a nice little email about it, saying it seemed like I was speaking with my own voice now, instead of copying other people's experiments. I took this as a compliment. Rolf encouraged me to read the story at a literary event to see what reaction I'd get from an audience. I procrastinated over this suggestion for a while, but a few weeks later I find myself attending an event held in a pub in Topperton. There were all sorts of artistic people there, musicians, poets, storytellers. It was like another world. I was working in a call centre at the time, selling travel insurance. I suppose a lot of the people I interacted with in my day-to-day -day work may well have been musicians, poets or storytellers, but because I was paid to ask them questions specifically related to travel insurance, this created the impression that everyone in the world was principally concerned with travel insurance and anything outside of the world of travel insurance was just stuff that existed in my own head, brief little thoughts I'd have while I was on my tea break. But no, here were some actual real-life people who were creative in the same way that I was creative. Or maybe they were creative in their own unique ways. I wasn't sure. I hadn't spoken to any of them yet. I was a little bit nervous. When it came for my turn to get up on stage and read out my story, I recalled my experience as a tour guide and my stint as Sir Prancelot. I channeled my inner entertainer and blasted out the story as though it were a Shakespeare soliloquy. Rolf had given me a little public speaking tip, something about picking out individual members of the audience and briefly making eye contact with them, as though for that moment at least you were speaking directly to that person. I didn't have the story memorised, so this was a particularly difficult trick to pull off. I looked up from my paperwork as much as I possibly could, but was paranoid about losing my place, so I'd quickly look down again and reconnect with the words. My brief little nods up to the audience weren't enough to make any proper connection. Halfway through the story, I managed to locate an audience member who was looking directly at me. In fact, he was staring at me. As soon as I saw him, I knew who he was. He was wearing the exact same outfit I'd seen him in last time. Tweed jacket, corduroy trousers and hiking boots. I stopped talking. I didn't even bother trying to find my place on the page again. I'd become too distracted. I said, what the hell are you doing here? Do go on, replied the antique dealer. I drew a map of the local area in my mind and realised we were only one train stop away from the antique shop where once upon a time I'd punched this man in the face. I answered my own question. This man was here because this was a local arts event and that was the sort of thing an antiques dealer would do. He could hardly go bowling or attend a football game or a rave. 
This was one of the few social occasions in which this man actually felt part of the furniture. I'm sorry, I said. It's okay, said a friendly voice from the front row. Just pick up where you left off. I would, I said, but frankly, I'm scared. Just pretend we're not here, someone else whispered. Or pretend we're all on the toilet, another voice chimed in. It was difficult to figure out what to do with that particular suggestion. I would like to continue, I said, but I'm afraid to say I don't like the look in this man's eye. A few audience members glanced across at the antiques dealer. I'm sorry, sir, I continued. I don't mean to cause a scene, but I can't help feeling you're going to try and citizens arrest me again. The antique dealer raised an eyebrow. Why would I do that? I don't know, I said. Also, I didn't know what else to say, so to ease the tension in the room, I glanced down at the paper in my hand, which I realised was shaking slightly, and read out the rest of the story without looking up. To my surprise, I received an enthusiastic round of applause. Despite the disruption in the middle, people had actually enjoyed my story. There's a twist at the end, which I was worried people wouldn't get. Apparently they did. I couldn't enjoy it, though. There was no time to savour the moment. As soon as that applause started, I remembered that my copy of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders was still nettled in my inside pocket. I should have known better after what happened last time. Given that I was no longer obsessed with Jenna, it seemed odd that I would still be carrying her book around with me, pressed against my heart. I noticed the antique stealer politely clapping along with the rest of them. He was staring at me still. There was nothing else for it. I had to get out of there. I'd driven my new car there. All I needed to do was escape to the car park. I mumbled a quick, Thank you, to the audience as I left. The car park was located to the rear of the building. But the back exit was clearly visible from the room we were in. In a bid to keep things subtle, I slipped out the front door and crept round the side of the building. The antique dealer was waiting for me in the car park with that same fixed smile on his face. Oh, for God's sake, I said to him, what do you want? The book in your pocket, he said calmly. There's no book in my pocket. It sticks out slightly, he said. If that rectangular object in your pocket isn't a book, I must say that's a rather large cigarette case. Who the hell uses cigarette cases now, I said. Forgive me, the man smiled. I'm an antiques dealer. Listen, I said, I'm sorry about what happened, OK? I don't make a habit of punching people. I hope I didn't hurt you. Apology accepted, he said. I'm glad our paths have crossed again. It gives us a chance to clear the air, wouldn't you say? I suppose so. Also, it gives us the opportunity to pick up where we left off. Frank Burton. How do you know my name? I didn't until this evening. That's what they announced you as when you read out your story. It was very good, by the way. Thank you. Frank Burton, I am placing you under citizen's arrest. Look, this is completely unnecessary. You had the right to remain silent 
and all the rest of it. Let's go. Shut up, mate. I was all ready to push past him and jump into my car. Then I realised if I did that, this man would then have both my name and my vehicle registration. I had a sudden vision of the antiques dealer turning up on my doorstep the next morning, accompanied by uniformed officers. I turned around and ran in the opposite direction. I was wheezing in a matter of seconds. I had youth on my side and was reasonably fit and healthy, but I literally never ran anywhere. It must have been years since I'd attempted anything faster than a brisk walk. I glanced over my shoulder and he was right behind me, arms pumping like a professional athlete. He may have been twice my age, but it was bound to catch up. So I stopped running and turned to face him. Come on then, I said. You want the book? Come and take it off me. See what happens. The antiques dealer, still smiling, walked towards me and reached out to grab the front of my coat. I realised at this moment we were halfway across a bridge. I didn't have time to consider my options. At that moment in time, it seemed like I only had one option available. And so I ducked my head, grabbed him by the legs, shoved him over the wall beside us and dangled him over the bridge by his feet. All I needed to do was let him go and he'd plunge headfirst into the rocky river below. The antique dealer let out a scream. Please tell me this has wiped that ridiculous smile off your face, I yelled at him. Has anyone ever told you how annoying that is? Yes, he called up at me breathlessly. Many people have, in fact. Stop doing it then. I'll try. I promise I will. Just let me go. No, don't let me go. Pull me up. I might, I yelled, if you agree to leave me alone. I will, he called, but I can't promise I won't call the police, Frank Burton, so I suggest you get rid of that book as quickly as possible. Sure, I shouted, call the cops, see if I care. By the way, make sure you spell my name correctly, otherwise they'll arrest the wrong man. Listen carefully, my first name is spelt... F-R-A-N-C and my surname is Bolton. That's the correct pronunciation, by the way. B-O-U-L-T-O-N. They should have me on their database already. I'm a repeat offender. I have this habit of throwing antique stealers off bridges. Don't do it, he cried. What are you going to tell the police? I barked. I'll tell them about you being in possession of that book. And you'll tell them my name? What's my name? I'm feeling very uncomfortable now. I slammed his ankles harder against the stone. What's my name? Frank Bolton. How do you spell that? F-R-A-N-C B-O-L No, wait. Oh, my God. Oh, my It's B-O-U-L-T-O I yanked at his feet, hauling him back over the wall and upright again. He bent over double, gasping for air. Make sure you call them, I said. Call them tonight as soon as you get home. I will, Mr Bolton, I promise. With that, I was gone. I ran, effortlessly this time, back to my car and away.
Chapter 24 The following day, I took my copy of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders with me to the office job I was doing at the time. I placed it in my desk drawer inside an innocent-looking cardboard wallet. I was half expecting the police to be waiting for me when I got home, but they weren't. They weren't there the next day either. The antique stealer was presumably an intelligent man, probably privately educated. It seemed doubtful that he'd fallen for that Frank Bolton ruse. Maybe I'd genuinely scared him off. It was a rather psychotic thing to have done, although, weirdly, I didn't feel in the least bit guilty about it. Maybe he'd called the police, but failed to mention the fact that I'd dangled him off a bridge, opting instead for reporting me for possession of a banned book. If that was all he'd said, it wasn't all that surprising that the police hadn't contacted me. Surely they had more important matters to attend to. In any case, he'd have called Yorkshire Police rather than Manchester. I remembered Jenna's claim in her book that police from different regions rarely communicate effectively. I decided to stop worrying about it. Later that week, on Friday morning, I was getting dressed for work when a song came on the radio. Our song. Getting Away With It by Electronic. It took me right back to that time at the hotel when I danced with Jenna to that song. We'd sang together and Jenna had told me that one day I would write about this. She was always saying that. I remembered that spark that flashed between us, whatever it was, that connection, that something or other, whatever it was, it wasn't there anymore. But then that song came on, the radio, and there it was again. I felt as though she was standing right in front of me, singing those words, as though she'd written this song just for me and her. I wanted to hold her in my arms and dance with her again. Then I wanted to sit down with her and talk, properly talk, not about work or the weather, but everything that excited us. I wanted to hear about her next crazy scheme, whatever it was. I texted her saying, let's meet up for a drink tonight, it's been too long. She texted back, come round to my place, I have a stack of paperwork, but that doesn't mean we can't have a drink. Five minutes later, she sent a follow-up message saying, It's good to hear from you, Frankie. Frankie. It had been so long, I'd forgotten that she called me that. It felt good hearing it. I arrived at her place after work with a couple of bottles of Chardonnay. You're a wine drinker now, Frankie, she said. How sophisticated. It's Rolf and Rose who gave me a taste for it, I said. This isn't the expensive sort, mind you. Ah, Rolf and Rose, she said. We should start calling them mum and dad now, right? I laughed and we spontaneously high-fived. I remembered the first time Jenna had described Rolf and Rose as her parents. It seemed slightly obscene at the time, given the circumstances, but now it felt like the perfect comparison, not just for Jenna, but for me as well. I told her about my recent contact with my actual parents, such as they were, my mum's surprise party which she howled with laughter at, and the last conversation I'd had with my dad. Do you think he'll actually leave her? She said. I can't bring myself to care, I said. She poured two large glasses of wine. 
So how you been, Frankie? she said. I haven't been up so much, I said. Writing seems to be going well. I'm working on some short stories. They're pretty good. Send them to me, she said. I'll send you the good ones. I've missed you, Frankie. I've missed you too. I think about you all the time. Really? I said. Yes, she said. I really do. There's something about you. I don't know what it is, but you're different to other people and you're going to do great things. These short stories are just the start of it. I can't explain how I know this. It's just a feeling I have. Thanks, I said. It's nice to be here and for what it's worth, I think about you too. Not all the time, but several times a day at the very least. I thought about you first thing this morning. That's why I texted you. Our song came on the radio. Jenna knew which song I was referring to and started humming the opening piano bit. And then we sang the song together all the way through from start to finish. By the end, we were both on our feet, arms in the air. We hadn't even touched our drinks yet. We sat back down, clinked our glasses together and each took a swig. I started wondering this morning, I said, about your new project, your follow-up to Operation Elephant, whatever it is. You still have something in the pipeline? Oh yes, she said. What's this one called? It's called Rhododendron, she said with an entirely straight face. I tried not to laugh. Why is it called that? It's just a word that I like. I wouldn't say I'm a fan of the flowers in particular. I probably couldn't pick one out from a lineup. I just like the word. I like the effort you have to put in to say it. Rhododendron. Also, it's deceptively difficult to spell. Okay, I said. I'll be honest, it's taken me a while to get here, but I think I'm ready now. I want to know about Operation Rhododendron. Hit me with it. Are you sure you want to know? She said. Definitely. I'd love to share it with you, she said, but you don't need to be involved this time. There isn't a role for you to play. It's actually much simpler and also much more lucrative. Really? Yes, and that's another reason I ought to be reluctant to share it with you. It'll be a major crime, bigger than before. It's all starting to get very serious. And like I say, there isn't any need for you to be involved at any level. I do want to know, though. Trust me, I really want to tell you. I can't wait to tell you. I knew you were going to ask, and that's why I suggested meeting at my place. So I can tell you all about Operation Rhododendron. In a way, I can't believe we used to sit in a pub discussing Fido and Elephant without much of a care over who was listening. But this time, we need to be seriously strict. Absolutely no discussion of this plan in public at all. Definitely not on the phone. Nothing in writing whatsoever. I understand about all of that, I said. Make sure you understand this, she said seriously. If I tell you about rhododendron and you don't immediately call the police, you'll be committing a serious criminal act. You'll effectively be a conspirator simply because I told you and you failed to take appropriate action. If it comes down to it, 
and we end up in court, not that we ever will, by the way, but you have to consider the worst-case scenario. If we do end up in court, you could always claim you assumed I was joking. In this case, that would be an adequate defence because it's going to sound like a joke. Anyway, the point I'm making is, as much as I'd like to share this with you, I don't want to force you to break the law just by listening some words from my mouth. I replied with no hesitation. I'm willing to take the risk, Jenna. I've considered this already. Given your track record, the chances of me being implicated seem pretty remote. You say that, she said, but you don't know what I'm planning. And the only way to know what I'm planning is to listen. And that means breaking the law. Are you willing to do that, Frankie? I've done it before, I said. I've done it twice already. We might as well round off the trilogy. And so Jenna told me. And only then I understood. I understood who she really was. And what a ridiculous mistake I'd made. Chapter 25 Well, go on then, she said. Say something at least. I wasn't ready to speak yet. It's shocking, I know, she added. But you have to admit, it's simple. I said it would be. I closed my eyes and started to wish I could pull the same trick with my ears, close them, and block out all the noise whenever I wanted. Nice little evolutionary add-on. Jenna continued. It's another victimless crime, by the way. In case you're thinking I've suddenly discarded my ethical concerns, I'm an academic, you know, Frankie. First and foremost, I do think about these things. I think about the wider implications, and I also think about all the good I could do with a billion pounds. Think about that, a billion pounds. That's what rhododendron is all about. Really? I said. Is that really what rhododendron is all about? Or is it all your ego? Just like the last two crimes? Oh, she said. I wasn't expecting that. Ego? Really? Do you really think that, Frankie? Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I think that's your primary motivator in everything you do. Jenna's mouth was hanging open, apparently in utter bewilderment. Since when have you thought that? She said. I've been thinking that for two years at the very least. I don't believe you. I don't believe that's what you really think. You're shocked and maybe even appalled at what you've heard. And that's understandable, but surely you know that none of this is for my own personal gain. I've raised millions of pounds for charitable organisations all over the world, and I intend to do the same again on a grander scale. If that makes me in some way egotistical, that's fine. I'll take that. Now, let's talk about what's really bothering you, Frankie. Why are you getting so wound up about rhododendron? Because it's insane. I shouted. I'd never shouted at Jenna like that before. I don't recall ever having argued with her about anything either. Now she was the speechless one. She bowed her head so that I wouldn't read her expression. Maybe I'd upset her. 
Maybe I'd amused her. I couldn't tell. Clearly Jenna was not the person I'd once thought she was. She wasn't the person I thought she was five minutes ago. Also, I continued, what if it goes wrong? It's not going to go wrong. I've spent months ensuring that it doesn't. Are you seriously telling me there's no possible way that those explosives could detonate at the wrong time? Absolutely not. It's completely secure. What if there's some kind of interference? There'll be a military response to this. They have bombs of their own. They could drop a bomb on top of your bomb and there'd be a double explosion, surely. It wouldn't make any sense for them to do that. They'd need authorization first. No commander in their right mind would authorise something like that. They'd be directly responsible for destroying Stonehenge. I closed my eyes as those two words hit me again. Destroying Stonehenge. Jenna, I said, trying to keep myself from shouting again. You can't fly a helicopter full of explosives into the middle of Stonehenge and say, give me a billion pounds or I'll blow it up. You just can't do that. Why not? She said. Seriously, why not, Frankie? I've told you there is absolutely no way that bomb will actually go off. It's been safety checked a thousand times. It's barbaric. That's the point. What does that mean? It means you have to do something barbaric in order to ask for this kind of money. Anyway, weren't Fido and Elephant acts of barbarism too? They were nothing like this. You claimed Skipton Castle was rigged with explosive when it wasn't. Then you claimed the same about Carnarvon Castle and they paid you again even though there were no explosives the first time and as it turned out no explosives the second time either. So the only thing left for me to do is make sure I use explosives the next time and prove to them that the bomb is real. That's all I can do now. There is no other option. There is definitely another option, a much safer and much simpler one. Don't do it. For God's sake, you're acting like this is some kind of compulsory mission for the good of humanity. It isn't, Jenna. All you're doing is flying a helicopter full of explosives into Stonehenge, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's also a site of religious significance for thousands of pagans, which makes it a kind of hate crime, surely. No, it doesn't. It would be a hate crime if I had any intention of detonating the bomb. Also, I don't hate pagans or any other religious people, so how can it be a hate crime? Would you threaten to bomb a cathedral or a synagogue? No, because those sorts of buildings wouldn't have the same kind of access point. With Stonehenge you can fly a helicopter right into the middle of it. This is insane, I repeated. It's completely insane, Jenna. It's a lot to take in, Frankie. I thought you might be surprised by what I've told you. I wasn't expecting this level of emotion from you. I've never seen you like this before. You've never threatened to bomb Stonehenge before. You just need some time to think about it. Digest what I've told you. It'll make more sense when the shock wears off. 
you can see it as the logical next step, the grand finale, the showstopper before I take my final bow. This is the last time I'll ever do anything like this, Frankie. I promise you that. Maybe you're right about the ego thing. Maybe I just want to leave my mark on the world. These crimes that I've committed will go down in history, Frankie, even if they're subject to the Official Secrets Act. As far as the general public are concerned, these events will never have taken place. Nonetheless, in a hundred years' time, when the security services are training up their new recruits, the first thing they'll tell them is what happened during Operation Rhododendron, how a terrorist known only as Len successfully held Stonehenge to ransom and how we can prevent these acts of terror from happening again. So, you admit it, I said. You're a terrorist. That's their word for me. That's what I'll be known as in the secret history books. I don't get to choose what they call me. So, are you a terrorist or not? Not as far as I'm concerned, said Jenna. There isn't a word for what I am. No one has seen fit to invent one yet. Yes, I know how that sounds. Egotistical. It's fine. You've got me on that. She put her arm on my shoulder. I didn't pull away. You know me too well, she said quietly. You're the only person I've told about this. There's no one else who would understand. I'm glad you agreed to listen to it, Frankie. As much as you object to the plan. What's important to me is you listened. I can't imagine what it would have been like keeping this whole thing to myself, planning it all and following it through without anyone ever having known about it. That's what I would have done if you weren't here. I know I said I didn't need your help on this, Frankie, but that's not strictly true. I don't need you to participate this time. I just wanted to tell you about it. Don't do it, I whispered. Please, don't do it. Just think about it, Frankie, she said. Sleep on it. And let's forget about it. Let's have a drink and stick some tunes on. I have an old school playlist ready that you're going to love. KLF, The Orb, DJ Shadow, Acid House, Electro, all sorts of stuff. Sounds good, I said, after a reluctant pause. Where did you get it all from? Have you heard of Napster? I grinned. Napster? You're trying to get me arrested or something? We laughed. Chapter 26 I slept in Jenna's spare room that night. I woke up mid-morning with a sore head. As I lay there, replaying the events of the previous evening, it didn't take long to reach the conclusion that sleeping on it was never going to change my mind. Jenna may have successfully taken my mind off our disagreement for a couple of hours with her music and wine, but that was all just distraction. She was still committed to carrying out a horrendous act of extortion and there was no way I'd ever be okay with that. But what was I supposed to do now? 
How was I supposed to act around her? Was this the end of our friendship? Relationships end over much more trivial matters. This was much more than just a difference of opinion. This was... Moral? Was that the word I was looking for? Was this a moral judgment? Jenna thought of herself as an honourable person. She was generous. She was a good friend. What makes a good friend, anyway? What does that even mean? I had other friends, but they were nothing like Jenna. Is that because she was the only good friend I had? Or were they just ordinary people and she wasn't? Is that why she interested and excited me in the way that my other friends didn't? I should call the police, I decided. It may be disloyal, but it was the right, right thing to do. Was that it? No, that wasn't it. Also, if I called the police, what would I say to them? I had no evidence that the crime was going to take place. They might take me seriously and search her house or something, but she was way too cautious to leave evidence lying around. There was no evidence. That's what she kept telling me. If anyone ever accused her of being a criminal mastermind, she could reply by saying, No, I'm a doctor of criminology. That much is true, but a criminal? I like to tell stories, and sometimes I tell stories about hypothetical crimes to amuse myself and amuse my friends. If I've given anyone the impression that I'm actually going to do any of these things, I apologise. If only I had some way of knowing if all of this was nonsense or not. Jenna would never admit to making the story up, as ludicrous as it all was. There must be something I can do, I thought. There must be some way of catching her out, revealing once and for all that all these stories of bombs and threats and automated wrecking crews were nothing but an elaborate fairy tale. The more I thought about it, the more convinced I became that this was the approach I should take. Don't tell the cops, but launch an investigation of my own. And there was an obvious candidate for the first person I should speak to. It was risky, that was for sure, but it had to be done. This was going to drive me out of my mind otherwise. I reached for my phone. The battery was low and I didn't have a charger with me, but I had enough juice to send a text. It was lucky that Rose had given me her number at Christmas in case I needed it. I definitely needed it now. Can I speak with you in private? I texted. Phone's almost dead, so can't call at the moment. Perhaps we could meet for lunch later, just the two of us. If it's possible to keep this from Rolf and Jenna, I'd really appreciate it. I can explain later. I wasn't expecting a reply straight away, but quick as a flash, Rose sent me the name and address of a restaurant close by to her place. Can you make it for one? She added. Great, see you there, I texted. Thank you. I was going to add a kiss, but decided against it. Downstairs, Jenna had made me some tea and toast. I thanked her and wolfed it straight down without even pausing to take a seat. On your way somewhere, she said. I have to go home, I said. Just remembered, they're delivering my new washing machine. Okay, she said. It was fun last night. I nodded. I'd better be off, mate. Frankie, about all this rhododendron business. It's fine, I said quickly. You were right, about sleeping on it. I overreacted. 
Oh, thank God for that. I thought I'd lost you for a minute. Lost? I said, what do you mean? Lost you as a friend. I'm not sure if I could handle that. Come here, I said, wrapping my arms around her. You're my best mate, and that's all there is to it. That's a relief. Let's talk about this later. I'd better be off. According to the sat-nav, the restaurant was an hour's drive away. My phone died halfway through the journey. I spent the whole journey worrying that Rose might have texted to change the plan and what she might say when she found out the purpose of our meeting. I'd never been sure how to act around Rose. I thought of her as a surrogate mother, but also I found her quite attractive. She'd always been easy company, but I can never quite forget about the time I dropped my trousers in front of her and what an utter embarrassment that was. I felt like we were friends, but I could never quite tell what she was thinking or what she was going to say next. Rose was waiting at a table for two when I arrived. As soon as I caught sight of her face, all those fears and conflicts were gone. I knew she'd listen, and I knew I could trust her. She greeted me with her usual embrace and double kiss. I was getting the hang of it now. How are you? she said. I've ordered us some tea. Thanks, I said, sitting down opposite her. I'm good. Bit of a strange situation, but it's really nice to see you. Thanks for meeting up. It's good to see you too, Frank, she said. We should do this more often. Does Rolf know you're here? Oh, he's out playing golf, she said. Poor man. He hates the game, but feels like he has a join in with a pack. I'm glad I'm not part of that world myself. So he doesn't know you're meeting me? Don't worry, Frank. I know how to keep a secret. That's good. Sorry to put you in this position, lying to your husband and everything. It wouldn't be the first time. I poured some tea into my cup, wondering how expensive this place was. So this strange situation of yours, she said, I'm intrigued. Tell me all about it. I can't tell you everything, I said. I wish I could, but there are some details you're definitely better off not knowing. That's all I'll say about that. The crux of the matter is this. I don't feel like I can trust Jenna anymore. I feel like she's lying to me about a whole bunch of stuff, and I want to get to the bottom of it. First of all, I was wondering if you've ever found her to be dishonest in some way. Rose laughed. Who, Jenna? The woman who's been secretly having sex with my husband for years? Oh, I see what you mean, I said. I suppose what I mean is, apart from that, apart from the big lie, anything she's mentioned in conversation that doesn't quite have a ring of truth or an outright lie that you know for a fact simply isn't true? I don't think so, said Rose. She seems quite private about a lot of things. She doesn't like to talk about her upbringing or the precise details of her work. She'll happily talk for hours on end about books that she's read or theories she's interested in, but from my experience, she very rarely says anything personal. So, would you describe her as secretive? Not exactly. I'd describe her as private. She's one of those people who doesn't like talking about themselves. I suppose under different circumstances... Jenna and Rolf would make a lovely couple. Rolf, God bless him, 
That's all he ever does. Talk about himself, I said with a sly grin. I'm sure you've noticed. The waiter came over and we ordered some food. I was still slightly hungover from the night before, so I just ordered a salad. Also, it was the cheapest thing on the menu. Has Jenna ever spoken to you about studies she's done as part of her work? I asked when the waiter had gone. Papers she's written? I've tried reading a couple of her articles in the European Journal of Criminology, if that's what it's called, but I could never get past the second page of these things. The academic language is too much for me. Did she ever tell you about the Finders Keepers experiment? I don't think so. I have a feeling this is the key to it all. I think this is the one time I've actually caught her blatantly lying. But still, I can't conclusively prove that's what she did, or indeed, why she did it. I have a very strong suspicion that the Finders Keepers experiment was rigged in a very obvious way just so that she could prove a point. What did she do? said Rose. I started speaking, then stopped myself. This is just between you and me, she said. I know, I said. It's going to sound ridiculous, that's all. I was one of her volunteers, sent out into the street to see if I could find anything of value. Her hypothesis was that a person can make a good living as a scavenger, helping themselves to whatever they can find in the street. Like the Wombles of Wimbledon, said Rose. I don't know what that means. Sorry, children's cartoon before your time. Carry on. Anyway, it's my firm belief that Jenna planted a solid gold Rolex for me to find, plus a bunch of similarly expensive items for other volunteers. You found a Rolex in the street? I did, and I left it there. Someone else took it. It's a shame, because I could have used it as evidence, figure out where it had been purchased from and by who. Wouldn't that mean that Jenna had spent thousands of pounds on a watch that was likely to go missing? You might not know this about her, but Jenna has a lot of money stashed away. I don't know how much, but she's pretty well off. Rich enough to waste a five-figure sum to fix the findings of an academic study that no one, or at the very least very few people, are actually going to read? It doesn't quite make sense. It's the only possible explanation. There's another explanation, said Rose. A simple one. What if Jenna's hypothesis was correct? Perhaps if you wander the streets for long enough, you'll find yourself a Rolex or something of equivalent value. How long were you looking before you found it? Well, to be fair, it was three weeks of full-time work, 120 hours of searching. So, maybe that's it. Maybe you happened to chance upon it. It's starting to sound plausible. Well, it may well sound plausible, I said, but that's not quite good enough. I need to know, because if that's a lie, it means that everything's a lie. If it's the truth, Maybe everything's the truth. Does the truth have to be such an absolute thing? It does in this case, I think. What I'm trying to prove is, can Jenna McIntyre be trusted? That's the ultimate question here. Which brings me to the other thing I was going to ask you about. What happened when you had her investigated? Oh, that was just a bit of fun, 
said Rose. I wanted to catch them out, Rolf and Jenna and their little affair, so that's what I got. You also said something about your private investigator giving you some details of people Jenna associated with. Me, for example. Who else was there? No one of interest, she said. Do you still have the report? Somewhere, she said. I'll happily dig it out for you. That would be great. Also, would you mind if I speak to this guy myself? If there's anything in there that might need some further explanation? I don't see why not. This is all rather exciting, you know. I wish I could feel excited about it, I said. Our lunch has arrived. I munched slowly on my salad. Tell me, Frank, said Rose. Are you still single? I stopped munching and nodded. It's just a thought, she said, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but are you a little bit in love with Jenna? No, I said firmly. I wanted to add I'm a little bit in love with you, but had no desire to broach that subject again. So if you don't mind me asking, why are you single? I don't know, I said. That's my honest answer. You have a lot going for you, Frank. If you wanted to find someone, I'm sure you could do that really easily. So the fact that you haven't done that suggests to me that you don't want to. I agree, I said. I don't want to. Not at the moment. But why not? It's nothing to do with Jenna, I said. I used to think it was. I used to think she was my proxy girlfriend or something. But that's definitely not the case. I've hardly seen her at all for the last couple of years. As a matter of fact, I've only just let her back into my life after a long time. The truth is, I just like being on my own. I enjoy my own company. Also, I think it takes me a very long time before I can really trust someone. Jenna's a good example of that. We've been friends for a very long time, but still, I don't trust her. Maybe I have good reason to, maybe I don't, but that's the way it is. That's the way I am with everyone. Apart from you, actually, Rose, it's funny, but I was worried about how this conversation would go down, but as soon as I saw you, I had a moment of clarity. I knew that you'd listen to what I had to say, and I knew that I could trust you. Does that make sense? It does, she said. As it happens, this reminds me of something. I had a friend once who used to say the most interesting things. The most interesting thing she said to me was this. If you want to really get to know someone, all you need to do is find out who they're trying to impress. Because everyone has a person, one special person they're trying to impress. Maybe this is an oversimplification of how human beings work, but there's something about this theory that really touches a nerve with me. My friend asked me this question, Who are you trying to impress, Rose? And to my complete surprise, I had an answer for her straight away. I understood. Rolf is more of a classic case than me. His father died when he was 12. He worked hard for a living, but his ambitions were always greater than his achievements. He'd always wanted the kind of career that Rolf has gone on to have. And Rolf has achieved all these things, not because he's motivated by money or the desire to live a certain lifestyle. He couldn't care less about the lifestyle, if we're honest. Take the whole golf thing, for example. It just isn't him, so why is he doing it? Why is he out there right now, 
doing something he fundamentally dislikes. Let's consider that question again. Who is Rolf trying to impress? Without a doubt, he's trying to impress his father, which is odd because Rolf is an atheist. There is no part of Rolf that believes his father still has some conscious presence. In Rolf's mind, his father no longer exists and hasn't done so for quite some time. But we're not rational creatures, Frank. None of us are. I firmly believe that in order to properly know yourself, you should firmly acknowledge your irrational side. Rolf himself has certainly done that. After my conversation with my friend, I pointed all these things out to him and he wholeheartedly agreed. He is trying to impress his father, even though he knows his father no longer exists. Actually, that wasn't the way Rolf said it. He said, my father does exist, but he's no longer my father. He's an imaginary version of my father who exists in my head based on my memories of him and my perception of how that man might react in any given situation. That is what life after death really means. I am a living organism in which a version of my father exists. He's here with me right now and will be here until the day I die. Then and only then will my father be truly dead. And yes, this man who lives inside me, he is the person I am trying to impress with every fibre of my being. When I make a mistake, the man inside my head flips a switch to express his disapproval. When I succeed, and thankfully that's mostly the case, the man in my head is happy. His happiness is my happiness. The two things have become indistinguishable from each other. Wow, I said. Did Rolf really say all of that? He did, said Rose. I remember it very clearly, and he still talks about these ideas all the time and builds upon them. Since this conversation, whenever the subject of Rolf's father comes up, it feels as though we're not talking about the flesh and blood version, but the incarnation that lives inside Rolf's head. And what about you, I said. Who are you trying to impress? I'd like to say my mother, said Rose. But it's not my mother, it's my mother's friend, Gretel. She's still alive. We're still very much in contact. I've never told Gretel this, by the way. Maybe I should tell her before she died, that she is my Riker. That's what we call it in our house. It was Rolf's father's name. So that's our name for that special person in your life, the person you are trying to impress. There's no doubt in my mind that Gretel is my Riker. I can't explain why. I had a perfectly fine relationship with my own mother, but she was never my Riker. I was never desperately seeking her approval. I was more concerned about what Gretel thought of my school report than what my parents thought of it. Whenever I brought a boyfriend home to meet my parents, it was always a stress-free experience. If they liked him, fine. If they didn't like him, I didn't much care. But I desperately wanted Gretel to like him, whoever he happened to be. If Gretel didn't approve, that was the end. This is strange because I was never especially close to Gretel. I didn't see her very often. And whenever she came to the house, it was to see my parents, not to see me. My parents were as loving as any parent could have possibly been. And yet, when my friend asked the question, Who are you trying to impress? I only had one answer. It was instantaneous. Gretel. Gretel is my Riker.
That's the way it always was and that's the way it remains. And you know what, Frank? In a way, it's almost as though I'd lived my life in order to make Gretel jealous in some way. She'd always wanted money. I married a wealthy man, maybe just to show her how it could be done. She'd always resented being tied down by having four children. I showed her that a woman can live a full life with no children at all. The strange thing is, I've never said any of these things to her. Perhaps I've got what Rolf has got with his father, my own version of Gretel who lives in my head, expressing her approval whenever I do something empowering. I realise I'm making it sound as though a person's Riker is by definition a parental figure of some kind. That certainly doesn't have to be the case. Your Riker could be a friend of your own age or a younger sibling who looks up to you and you delight in demonstrating to them how life can be lived. It could even be someone you've never met, a famous person you've always emulated. Aha, I said, I see where you're going with this. You're going to say Jenna is my Riker. Not necessarily. I was going to ask the question, though. Who are you trying to impress? Not Jenna, that's for sure, and definitely not a family member. As a matter of fact, I know exactly who my Riker is. I knew straight away, as soon as you explained the concept, there's a guy called Dennis, who I've been corresponding with for a number of years, since I was a kid. He was kind of a mentor to me for a while. He was a journalist when we first met. He's not anymore. It's a very long story. I suppose I'll end up writing a book about him at some point. In fact, I definitely will. It's a very good story. But anyway, he's my Riker, Dennis Gleason. And what about Jenna? She said. She's what made me think of this whole Riker thing. It seems to me that Jenna is something of a mystery. You can't figure out her motivations. It's just a thought, but it's worth asking the question, who is Jenna trying to impress? I thought about this question for a while. No idea, I said. Maybe if you found that out, you'd understand her better. Hmm, I said. I'll try. I'm not sure how I could find that out. Maybe you could ask her, said Rose. I wouldn't know if I could trust her reply. I see what you mean. You don't think it's Rolf, do you? That's a possibility. She does look up to him. That being said, there's a whole bunch of stuff Rolf doesn't know about Jenna. Really? Like what? Oh, I see, the aforementioned things you can't tell me. Exactly. You've got me wondering now. Please don't wonder too much, I said. As I say, you're better off not knowing. I just wonder what poor old Rolf is letting himself in for. I wouldn't want her to break his heart. I don't think she will, I said. Not intentionally, anyway. I opened my mouth to say something else, but thought better of it. What? said Rose. Nothing, I said. Go on, Frank, it's on the tip of your tongue. Okay, I said. I will let you in on one little secret. The first time Jenna mentioned you and Rolf was an interesting one for me. She told me to forget everything I think I know about extramarital affairs. She said, I'm not a homewrecker. He's not a love rat, and she's not a victim. 
none of us are any of those things. I like that, said Rose, summing up nicely. Is this how you envisaged married life when you got engaged to him? I had no idea, she said. We were young, younger than you. No offence, but it often seems to me that people your age don't have the capacity to envisage. Everything is here and now until you hit thirty-five. At least that's how it was for me. I'd been married for years by then. Interesting. And how are things between you and Rolf now, if you don't mind me asking? I don't mind you asking, she said. They're the same as they always were. We've always been the same with each other ever since chess club. I smiled at that, remembering those outlandish wedding photos. Whose idea was the wedding concept, I said. The chess theme. It looks so bizarre. I see what you're saying, she said. People often assume Rolf taught me into it. Sometimes people assume I'm a wallflower, just because Rolf talks a lot. As it happens, the chess-themed wedding was my idea, and Rolf was happy to go along with it because chess was always such an important part of our lives. It was the perfect day as far as I'm concerned, even though half the guests hated it. We often talk about renewing our vows, doing the whole thing again. You'd be invited, of course. And Jenna? Sure, why not? Maybe because... I know, it would be rather strange, but it would be stranger if she wasn't there. Can't wait, I said. Chapter 27 After lunch, we popped briefly into Rose's house to collect the investigator's report. She'd assured me that Rolf wouldn't be home for hours, but still, I was afraid of getting caught. I'd better go, I said, when she'd handed over the file. Stay for a drink, won't you? She said. We'll have to make it another time, I said. We double-kissed, during which I accidentally pecked her on the lips. I should have been comfortable enough to shrug it off, but I felt embarrassed for the rest of the day. It was true, I reflected. I was a little bit in love with Rose Valentine but there wasn't much I could do about those feelings, other than keep hold of them. As expected, the investigator's report contained nothing aside from a few notes about Jenna's work, a couple of sentences about her friendship with me, and various photos of Jenna and Rolf entering and exiting the hotel. I knew this would be the case. In fact, the only reason I asked for the report in the first place was because it was a handy way of getting hold of the investigator's contact details. If Jenna's story was correct, that she'd caught him in the act of investigating her and paid him off so that he'd supply Rose with minimal information about her, that would suggest the investigator had uncovered something else, something incriminating, possibly even hard evidence of the workings behind Operation Fido. If that were the case, if this man had some concrete proof that Fido was an actual operation rather than a story my friend had told me, I needed to get in touch with him. I emailed him as soon as I got home. I said, I understand you have previously carried out investigations into Jenna McIntyre and would be very interested in speaking to you further. I wasn't expecting a reply until Monday at the earliest, but the man replied a couple of hours later saying, I'm very sorry, but I'm extremely busy right now. 
I don't think I can help you. I replied, I'm happy to pay whatever your rates are. He replied, It's not really about the money. In all honesty, the case you're referring to was a highly sensitive matter, so I cannot discuss any aspect of it, money or not. Please do not contact me again. I paced around the flat for a while, wondering what to do next. Stupidly, I let my emotions get the better of me. I sat back down at my desk and wrote, I know she bribed you to keep you quiet. Wait until word gets out that you're willing to accept hush money. I pressed send and regretted it straight away. Then the phone rang. Hello, I said. Are you threatening me? said a voice. Oh, it's you. I remembered I'd supplied the investigator with my phone number in my initial contacts. Well, he said. I think we may have got off on the wrong foot. Oh, you reckon? Yes, I'd like to make things right. Let's meet and discuss what you can and can't tell me. It'll cost you, he said. And not just my going right, it'll cost you ten grand. What, for a conversation? I'm the guy who's willing to accept bribes, right? You said so yourself. So it's ten thousand pounds or no deal. Fine, I said. The money's yours. Where shall we meet? Piccadilly Gardens, he said. I'll send you my photo so you'll recognise me. I could be there by 5pm. How about you? I'll be there, I said. With the money? Absolutely. The investigator was waiting for me on a bench. I sat down next to him. You got it, he said. Yes and no, I said. That is to say, good news and bad. Don't waste my time, he said. Listen, I said, the bad news is the money isn't in cash. The good news is it's around ten times more than you're asking for. I pulled my copy of How to Get Away with Someone Else's Murders from my pocket and placed it in his hand. Trust me, I said, you can make an absolute fortune from selling this. Is this a second edition? He said quietly. It certainly is. My God, am I really worth that much to you? Depends on what you have for me. Hang on, mate, he said. I can't accept this. A bribe's one thing, but this thing's priceless. You know that, don't you? I'm happy to let it go, I said. It has caused me all sorts of trouble. Well, I won't argue with that, he said, slipping the book carefully into his briefcase. He pulled out a folder and handed it to me. Here's what Jenna McIntyre didn't want sharing with the client. It's all her phone contacts, email contacts and photocopied pages from an address book I pinched from her bag. I also made some notes on this thing she called Operation Fido. I couldn't make head nor tail of it. Anyway, you know all about that, right? How do you know that I know? I said. I recognise you, he said. It was you she was talking to. You were sitting in a pub together, merrily chatting away about this Operation Fido business. I was at the next table taking notes. Well played, I said. Not exactly well played, he said. She noticed me sitting there and confronted me when you'd gone to the toilets. That's where the whole thing fell down. You probably think I'm totally corrupt, but I only accepted her bribe because it seemed like the tactful thing to do. The client got what she wanted, your friend Jenna was happy with the exchange, and I was a couple of grand richer. You were happy to demand a bribe from me, I said. Oh, he said. Well, that's because I am totally corrupt. 
and you're right to have assumed that about me. Anyway, I hope the stuff in this file is of some use to you. It might be. I was hoping you might have something more than this, some kind of evidence of criminal activity. Why? What do you think she's done? I don't know. You know she's a doctor of criminology, don't you? He said. Yes, but that doesn't mean she can't break the law. That's what I'm saying, he said. I once knew someone in that line of work. They reckoned criminology as an academic field tends to attract two types of person. Firstly, it attracts people who are damaged in some way, people who've been through some traumatic experience that led them to develop an unhealthy obsession with serial killers and the like. I don't think that applies to her, I said. What's the second category? Criminal masterminds, he said with a wink. Then he got up and left, and I never saw him again. Chapter 28 I spent a few hours studying the paperwork in the file. Most of Jenna's email contacts were either fellow academics or students at the university. There were a handful of Hotmail or Gmail accounts with generic sounding names. I didn't much fancy getting in touch with any of these people when all I had was an email address to go off. What would I say to them? If I asked about Jenna, they'd probably contact Jenna to advise her I was asking strange questions. She didn't have many phone contacts, and every single number that was listed belonged to a person she'd mentioned already in conversation. Then there were the pages from her address book, which, as it turns out, was mainly filled with doodles and to-do lists. Then, at the back, I found a copy of a student loans application form, not for a loan, but for a change of address. I remembered it all had to be done in writing. To this day, the student loans company sends statements to my parents' house because I never bothered completing the change of address form. The investigator had obviously found Jenna's completed form folded up in her address book and had taken a copy of it too, in case it turned out to be in some way important. So I'd failed to uncover any obvious evidence linking her to a crime, but I had one thing now that I'd never had before. I had her parents' address. I knew what I had to do. It was an insane prospect, but I needed answers. I needed to understand who Jenna was. If there was a way I could get to the truth, whatever that was, I'd have to uncover some of her secrets, and her parents were pretty much a mystery to me. She never talked about them, other than to vaguely insult them. But that's exactly what I did with my own parents, and they weren't exactly the people to ask if you wanted to find out anything significant about me. Maybe Jenna was different, though. The only way I could know that for sure would be to meet them. And so, the very next day, I put on my generic office clothes and set off to Keswick in the Lake District. I knew she was brought up in Cumbria, but I never knew where she was from exactly. She literally refused to mention the name of her hometown which I'd always found suspicious. In the car on the way there, I started wondering about what that private investigator had said about people who study criminology and how they're likely to be damaged in some way or have been through some traumatic experience. What monsters were lying in wait for me when I got to Keswick? I arrived and knocked on her parents' innocent-looking front door. A woman answered. She had an unlit cigarette in her mouth. She was twice Jenna's age, but there was no mistaking the resemblance. Hello, I said. I'm sorry to disturb. 
I'm doing some market research. On a Sunday, said Jenna's mum. People tend to be in more on a Sunday, I said with an uneasy smile. Good point, she shouted. Good point, very good point. Jeff, she called over her shoulder. Get this right, market research on a Sunday. He's not a Jehovah's Witness, is he? A man's voice bellowed back. I'll ask him, she replied. She turned back to me. Are you a Jehovah's Witness? I'm not, I said, adding, for no good reason. I'm an atheist. He says he's an atheist, she bellowed back at her husband. Since when do atheists knock on doors trying to convert people? He shouted back. What would be the point? Good point, she shouted back. She turned to me. Why are you here? I have a questionnaire, I said, and just to be clear, this is nothing to do with religion. I work for a market research company. We're interested in people's views and opinions. She turned back to the house and shouted, He has a questionnaire. He works for a market research company. They're interested in people's views and opinions. About what? He shouted back. She turned back to me. You can hear him, can't you? She said. The questions are on a range of different subjects, I said. If you can spare 20 minutes, that's all it will take. Oh, she chirped. 20 minutes, that's all it will take. Well, I'll tell you what, sir. I don't need to check with my husband on that. I'll be making an executive decision. You're coming in and you're asking us some questions. This is going to be very interesting. I followed her into the living room. A man who, based on his face, was clearly Jenna's dad, was slouched in an armchair, staring at a blank TV screen. It doesn't matter what you say to me, he said. I'm not going to convert. I'll tell you that now. I know I don't go to church, but that Richard Dawkins is an absolute crackpot. Did he put you up to this? Richard Dawkins, I said. Or one of those other professional atheists they have now. That's Stephen Hawking. He's one of them, probably. I got nothing against him. He's done very well for himself, considering. I really shouldn't have mentioned my religious beliefs, I said. That's really not the purpose of my visit. That's how they get you, though, isn't it? The Jehovah's try and pull that same trick. They don't start by saying we're Christians or whatever. They start by saying, are you happy? And that's a good question. I could talk about that for hours because no one's really happy, are they? But then there are very few of us who are really, really sad, like all the time. Even with clinical depression, you still get moments where you think, oh, I really fancy a Twix now. And you eat a Twix and it perks you right up. I talked at great length about this last time, didn't I, Kath? You did, barked Jenna's mum. We invited them all in as well. Well, you did, didn't you? You and your executive decisions. I'm starting to regret introducing that phrase into this household. You invited them in and we started talking about that question. Are you happy? Oh, for a hell of a long time. They probably wouldn't like me mentioning hell, but there you go. They were born again as, weren't they? Mormons, she said. What's the difference? I don't know. I have a question for you, Mr. Market Research Man said Jenna's dad. What's your name, by the way? William, I said. William, he said. Don't you shorten it? Sometimes I call myself Will. You never hear people call Willie nowadays, do you? He said. Willie Thorne, said Jenna's mum. But he's not a modern man, is he? Willie Rushton? Is it Rushton or Rushton? I don't care enough to Google it. Do you know about this Google thing? Jenna's dad asked me. This Google thing, I repeated. 
Search engines, explained Jenna's mum. You ask the computer a question and it tells you the answer. Like I was wondering the other day about the word birdbath. It just popped into my head. I didn't know whether I'd made it up or not. I had no idea whether there was such a thing as a bird bath or not. Do you know what a bird bath is? Uh, I said, I would guess it's a bath of some kind for birds, but I'm not sure. That's exactly what it is, she said. That's what Ask Google said. It's not Ask Google, her husband corrected. You're thinking of Ask Jeeves. Right, what's the other one called? Yippee, is it? Don't you mean Yahoo? I said. That's the one. So what's Yippee? That's something as well, isn't it? Try typing Yippee into Yahoo, said Jenna's dad. It'll give you your answer. You're distracting me from the main point, said Jenna's mum, which is that Yahoo, sorry, not Yahoo, a bird bath is a bath for birds. But it's an actual man-made thing. You can put them in your garden. It's an actual bath for actual birds. But what confused me was... What did birds do for a wash before the invention of the bird bath? I mean, seagulls have got the sea and everything. What about birds that live inland? They have to find themselves a lake or a river or something to bathe in. But then I thought, if they're doing that anyway, why do we need to stick our oar in and build a bath for them? It's completely unnecessary. I can see the benefit of putting out a bird table with some seeds on it, but honestly, a bath? What next? Toenail clippers for birds? They don't even have toenails as far as I know. So what would be the point of that? What makes you say that? said Jenna's dad. What? What makes you say birds don't have toenails? They have feet and they have toes on the feet. So you're telling me they don't have nails on the toes? Well, uh, have you checked? I'll Google it, she said defiantly. I couldn't be bothered when it was just the spelling of Willie Rushton's name, but do birds have toenails feels like a much more important question. It brings up all sorts of follow-up questions about the similarities and differences between birds and mammals. Birds are mammals though, aren't they? No, they're not, they're birds. Look it up. One question at a time, please. I cleared my throat. Um, talking of questions, I was hoping I could get through some of my own with the two of you, if that's okay. Of course it's okay, said Jenna's mum. That's why I invited you in. Great, well, let's get cracking in that case. First of all, please can I ask who lives here? Is it just the two of you? Easy question said Jenna's dad. Just the two of us. And are the two of you married? We are married, he said. Another easy question. I think you're mistaking this for a quiz, Jeff, said Jenna's mum. They're not really supposed to be taxing questions. Well, that's what I prefer, he said. Why don't you ask me what the capital city of India is, or China? I've been working on those. I'm awfully good. Tell you what, here's a challenge. Name any country in the world, and I'll tell you the capital city of that country. Can we play this game later? I said, I have lots of other questions to get through. Let's just do this once, he said. Just one country, it's all or nothing. If I get it wrong, I lose. Get it right, I win. It's really as simple as that. They should do a game show like that on the telly, where it's just one question, the whole thing, just one minute long. One question, big cash prize, no messing about. Very well, I said. What is the capital city of the United States of America? New York, said Jenna's parents in unison. Then they high-fived each other. Okay, I said, that settled that. My next question, do the two of you have any children? Just the one, but she's not a child anymore. She's an adult. And she doesn't live here? We haven't seen our daughter for a number of years, said Jenna's dad. 
I don't really know why. We've tried phoning her, haven't we, Calf? But she's changed her number. Yes, but she sends us a Christmas card. And you get a card in your birthday sometimes, don't you, Jeff? I got one from her last year, as it happens. I recognise the writing, even though she never signed her name. So, Jeff gets one, but you don't, I said. Well, said Jenna's mum, I'm not sure if Jenna knows when my birthday is. Somehow, this first mention of Jenna's name made my heart skip a beat. Maybe a part of me still suspected that despite the physical similarity, I'd somehow come to the wrong house. But no, these were definitely Jenna's parents. Why wouldn't she know that? I said. Is that an actual question on your sheet? said Jenna's dad. Actually, my next question was going to be about laundry detergent, I said. I was just curious as to why. It's okay, said Jenna's mum. I've just never made a big deal out of my birthday, and most years I don't bother acknowledging it myself, so perhaps our daughter has forgotten the actual date. What did your daughter do for a living? I said. I have no idea, said her mum. We're estranged, you see. How do you feel about that? Okay, if I'm honest, said Jenna's mum. She was always a handful, always getting in trouble, but always had an answer for everything. And a question for everything, said her dad. Always so full of questions we couldn't answer. I suppose if we'd had Google in our day, we'd have found things out a little bit easier. But even from the age of seven, she'd run rings around us, so to speak. Questions, questions, questions. And I'd lose me rag with her sometimes. I'd say, stop asking so many questions. You know what she'd say? You know, don't you? It's what they all say, these kids. But with her, I swear to you, it went beyond the realms of normal. Why? I heard it so many times a day, I couldn't keep up with it. Why? Sometimes I'd say, why are you asking? Why do you want to know? And she'd come back to me with, why won't you tell me? And nine times out of ten, I'd have to tell her, I don't know. I don't know why squirrels have those big bushy tails. I don't know why dandelions are that colour. I don't know who created the universe. I really don't know anything at all. Do you know what she said to that? Whenever I said, I don't know, she said, well, I'd better run off and find some other parents who know more things than you do. Pretty harsh, wouldn't you say, William? For a moment, I forgot I was calling myself William. William? Jenna's dad repeated. Yes, I said, I completely agree, that was rather harsh. And I suppose, said her mum, that's exactly what she's done. She's run off and found herself some other people who are better suited to answering all those questions. Maybe that's for the best. She did have a rather sharp tongue. She called me an idiot once. Well, that was uncalled for, I found myself saying. It's not my place to say, but I feel like perhaps yourself and your daughter have different types of intelligence. Does that make sense? I like your question about the birdbath. From my point of view, that's a very insightful and thoughtful thing to say, and it's a completely legitimate subject for conversation. I've never met your daughter, obviously, but I suspect she's the sort of person who would respond to that by saying, why are you talking about birdbaths for? It's an irrelevant subject. You should be talking about something else. Are you sure you haven't met her? said Jenna's mum. What makes you say that? Nothing, she said. Only that's exactly the sort of thing Jenna would say. Well, isn't that interesting, I said. I noticed that Jenna's dad had fallen asleep in his armchair. I lowered my voice so as not to wake him. I said, so tell me if you don't mind, 
What sort of laundry detergent do you generally buy? Thank you for listening. Once again, this book can be purchased from Amazon as a physical book or as an ebook. You can download the audiobook version from frankburton.bandcamp.com. Why not check out my website while you're at it, frankburton.co.uk. There's a bunch of stuff on there, including the Ragbag Rambler video series and uh, bits and pieces of fiction and stuff like that. Check it all out. I will see you tomorrow for the final part of this amazing book, Getting Away With It.